the bill of goods that we've been sold essentially is that the pathway to a life well lived is to be positive all the time and not be negative to look forward and not look back and that view right there is profoundly unscientific that view goes against what we know about emotions in general and this emotion in particular and so what i'm trying to do is get people to rethink their approach to regret Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Unleashed, the fastest hour on the internet, where every episode we feature a best-selling author or world-renowned thought leader, all in the name of helping you elevate your leadership impact. I'm your host, Jeff Tetz, and I want to thank our season sponsor, PowerEd. PowerEd is an award-winning division of Athabasca University who partners with organizations looking for impactful online learning solutions. Their on-demand online offerings include leadership, project management, artificial intelligence ethics, digital transformation, embracing allyship and inclusion, and digital wellness. Check out the team from Athabasca University at athabascau.ca. My guest today is Dan Pink. Daniel H. Pink is the author of five New York Times bestsellers, including his latest, the Power of Regret, How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward. His other books include the New York Times bestsellers When and A Whole New Mind, as well as the number one New York Times bestsellers Drive and To Sell is Human. Drive is one of the most recommended books that I have when people ask me something they should read. Dan's books have won multiple awards and have been translated into 42 languages and have sold millions of copies around the world. He lives in Washington, D.C. with his family. Dan, welcome to Unleashed. Jeff, thank you for welcoming, welcoming me to Unleashed. <laughs> yeah, I've been looking forward to this for a while, and I know, uh, I know I've been bugging you for, uh, uh, for about a year to come on the program, and I'm just so delighted uh, uh, that you said yes and, and really looking forward to this conversation. And it's a good week to be doing it. It's kind of a week of first, so it's your first appearance on Unleashed, but uh, it's also the first time, to my knowledge, <laughs> that you've been, on, uh, you've been on a cereal box. So you're, just, you're on a, a box of Wheaties now. Congratulations. Uh, yeah, that's just a gift from General Mills, so you're not going to be able to find it in the grocery stores of Alberta, but you can see it. Wait, where is it? You can see it back over here above my shoulder, yeah. right over there. So it's, so it's not for mass there. consumption. No, there you go. See that? Yeah, you betcha. Glad you got it there. So, Dan, I first became aware of you about eight years ago. So, long story short, I got stranded at the Calgary Stampede, and I had to take the bus home because my my friend left me uh, uh, there for uh, various reasons. And my business partner, I was looking for a book to ride on the bus home. It was about a three and a half hour bus ride home, and he suggested that I take Drive from our company library. So that was my first indoctrination into your work. And uh, to this day, eight years later, Drive is, is one of the most important books I think I've ever read. It's probably the book I recommend. Wow. It's probably the book I recommend people read more than any other book. And I recommend a lot of books. And, and I say that because I've been a fan of your work for a long time. And, and the other part of it is, is I want to just to say thank you because your body of work is so impressive. And even more than that, it's really impactful. So thank you for everything that you've done. Hey, thanks. Thanks for that. Thanks yeah, for that. No, uh, this, this, is what ha this is what happens, listeners, when you go to the Calgary Stampede. Yeah, that's right. Bad things you end happen. Up finding it's, it's, Calgary Stampede is, is really one of the best places to find reading recommendations, I found. So, fantastic. <laughs> so, you've said that you only want to write books. So stuck, at the, stuck at the Calgary Stampede sounds like the, the title of a, of a country song, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Well, it probably is. Yeah, it probably is. I never let yeah, my friend forget it. Yeah. We celebrate the anniversary of that every yeah. year for sure. Nice. So, Dan, you've, um, you've said that you only want to write books that you want to read. What made yeah. you want to write a book about the subject of regret? Yeah, it's a, it's a classic example of that in that sense that I had regrets. Um, you know, I was at a point in my life where I had room to look back, um, you know, all of us get there eventually, but I think it's for all, most of us, it's a surprise. You suddenly at a point where you look back and you're like, wait a second, I got some mileage on me. You look back and inevitably when we look back, we have things that we wish we had done. We had things we wish we hadn't done. We have things we wish we had done differently. And, um, and I was trying to make sense of that. And what I found is that when I started talking to people about this, um, that people wanted to talk about the subject much, 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 much more than I would have expected. And so that took me on this journey um, to 
try to make sense of this misunderstood emotion. But the starting point really is that this is a book I wanted to read because I had regrets myself and wanted to know what they meant and what to do with them. So if everybody wants to talk about them, and ironically, I, I saw a clip. It's an old interview, uh, old interview of Anthony Hopkins, and he's talking about his career and his legacy. <laughs> and he was asked if he had any regrets, and he said, no, not a single one. And I've heard you say that we've been sold a bill of goods when it comes to regret. Now, why yeah. do we look at regret as some form of illness or weakness? Well, I mean, I think what we, we look at, I, I think that we look at it that way in part because it's so unpleasant. Regret is, regret is an emotion, right? And it's emotion that makes us feel bad. And none of us like to feel bad. Uh, and so, uh, and, and so I, think that's, I think that's part of it. The second thing is that, is that we have also, the bill of goods that we've been sold, essentially, is that the pathway to a life well-lived is to be positive all the time and not be negative, to look forward and not look back. And that view right there is profoundly unscientific. That view goes against what we know about emotions in general and this emotion in particular. And so what I'm trying to do is get people to rethink their approach to regret. Now, you can have the, 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 no, the no regrets view is basically I ignore regrets. I never look back. Um, um, I, I put my fingers in my ears. I'm positive all the time. I look forward uh, relentlessly. I never look backward. That's a bad idea. You're going you're gonna to sacrifice growth and learning. Now, what's also a bad idea is the opposite extreme, which is wallowing in your regret, ruminating on your regret. What we should be doing is, as you know from the book, is thinking about our regret, confronting our regret, using it as information, as data, as a signal. And when we do that, there's a ton of research showing that there are many, many, many benefits of treating this emotion in a different way. Yeah, in any of your research, have you ever come across like a societal inflection point where we seem to go off on this positivity mm -hmm. at all costs direction? That's an interesting, yeah. It's a very interesting question and I'm not sure. Um, yeah. I, I think it's, it's, it's generally, it's a great question. It's a fascinating question too. It's, it, it, these kinds of things, at least in my interpretation, are generally not uh, like um, individual points, moments. It's not like, the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand triggered World War One. You know, it's like it's 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 a it's <laughs> yep. a slow, you know it's a slower it's a slower build. And I, and I think that um, some of it had to do with um, I think it's a very I, I think it's an American export more than anything else. And I think it has to do in part with I, I'm making this up largely. I'm just this is just my own theorizing. It, it, and I think it has to do with the a sense of American triumphalism after World War Two. Uh, and uh, a growing economy and the advent of people like uh, Norman Vincent Peale and Dale Carnegie, um, who were giving this very, I think some of it extraordinarily sensible advice, but rooted in this relentless positivity. Again, a lot of the advice is good. And here's the thing, positivity is good. Positive emotions are good. We want to have positive emotions. We want a hell of a lot of positive emotions, but we just don't want only positive emotions. We, we need a little nuance here. Right. And uh, a virtue can become a vice, I suppose, is, uh, is what it makes me think about. And I, and I know that you've said that in all of the, the thousands of people that you've talked to about regrets, the regrets uh, you know, across all domains seem to very, be very similar. But did, did you find any yeah. difference in the willingness to talk about re regrets amongst different groups or geographies? Uh, that's a great, that's another great question. And I didn't, but I didn't really probe that because the way that I did yeah. this, the way that I did this research, so I did two pieces of research just to give your listeners a little bit of background. One of them is what I call the American Regret Project, which was a giant public opinion survey of US attitudes about regret. And then the other one was a world regret survey where I invited people around the world to submit one significant regret. Um, and so there was a, you know, all the people who submitted regrets both the, 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 the 4,000 whom we randomly sampled in America and then the now nearly 22,000 around the world, they were all a coalition of the willing. They were all people who were you know, willing to offer up their regrets. So, um, so I don't know, it's an, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting question. Yeah, and, and I wanna get into sort of the, the, how do we use regret and all that kind of stuff, but, I, but I, I was also curious about whether or not it seems easier to admit regrets to a stranger. I think it might be. 
Um, and I think that's, I think there is, again, I, I'm, I'm going to guess on this because I'd have to look at the, I'd yeah. have, I, I don't know the full suite of evidence and research on this. One thing we do know is that there are benefits to disclosure in general, that disclosure in many ways isn't unburdening. And so disclosing to a stranger might be a way to unburden yourself without any lingering judgment or um, consequences of it. So, you know, if I unburden myself to, if I unburden a secret to um, uh, my next door neighbor who I'll have to, I see, you know, multiple times a week, I'm going to be reminded of that each time I see my neighbor. But if I unburden it to someone, if I unburden it anonymously to a stranger, I'm essentially exonerated from having to reckon with it. So, so I think that's, I think that's possible. I mean, and again, we have a tradition of this. I mean, we have a tradition, you know, if we think about disclosure, um, we, we can we can widen the lens a little bit and talk about how many of our religious traditions do a better job of dealing with negative, unpleasant emotions than our secular traditions do. So in Catholicism, you know, there is there is a notion of there's sin and there's repentance and there is there is um, there is a confessional. Um, and so in that case, you are essentially anonymous behind a screen disclosing something that you did, something that you did wrong, looking for that kind of um, exoneration. And so, um, yeah. so I, I think there is something about the anonymity. Now, the, forgive me for going too long on this, but so what I did in the, what the, this world regret survey, this giant collection tool where I collected, as I said, uh, I, I, I didn't look today, but I, I think we're at about close to 22,000 around the world. The, wow. What we do, uh, one of the things that's interesting about that is that I, I gave people anonymity there. I said, um, I just asked for their gender identity. I asked for their location in the world or you know, in, in, in North America, their US state or Canadian province. And then I asked for their age. Now, I gave them the option of including their email address if they wanted to be contacted for a follow-up interview. And we had just shy of a third of people opting in to leave their email address. And I found that remarkable. So what you had is you had all these people, tens of thousands of people willing to share their big regret with a complete stranger, but then a, a not insignificant number of them, you know, seven or eight, 7,000 or so said, hey, complete stranger, let me give you my email address so you can talk to me about my big regret. So, I, there, so there is, I think, a much greater, I think there's a case in, in some ways of pluralistic ignorance. We say, well, I'm willing to talk about my regrets, but no one else wants to do that. When in fact, we should always, in these cases, we should extrapolate from our experiences and say, hey, if I want to talk about my regrets, then I think other people might want to talk about their regrets. And, and, um, and so I think there is a very, anonymity is good for certain kinds of things, particularly things that, where people feel a sense of shame or guilt. But in general, I, people are much more willing to, to talk about it than I, than I would have suspected. Well, for sure. And, and besides, or in addition to uncovering some, some thematic regrets, the other thing that really uh, struck me in reading the stories in the book and then listening to you tell stories on other podcasts was that you gave license for people to talk about regrets and they broke that door down and then some, but it almost seemed like it was a cathartic experience for people. Like I thought it was really amazing. I'm like, why haven't they talked about this with somebody else before you came along with this amazing research study? I thought just really profound. So let's get. I, I think that's part of it. I think that's part of it. Let me tell you something else. Since you're since you're probing this, because sure. I think it's a very interesting issue, is that one of the things that happened to me that is very different from other, you know, reporting that I've done on this kind of on on you know various things is that I would have a conversation with people about their regret, and as a consequence of that conversation, people would then go change their behavior. That is, right. I interviewed people in order to essentially hear and then capture their story. And, and that's fairly standard in what I do, right? So I interview someone, I, you know, or multiple times, I try to sort of make sense of their story, capture their story, and then render their story. But very rarely does the conversation that I have with them fundamentally change the story. So what I had was that people were saying, God, I haven't talked about this with, exactly as you say, I haven't talked about this with anyone. I think I'm going to go do the X, Y, or Z. And they would email me and say, hey, guess what I did? And I'm thinking, no, 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 please, 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 you know, don't do anything more. I've already like written this. <laughs> well, it sounds like maybe there's a follow-up book or something to it. So that might be a key yeah. step. I wonder if that's a key step then. Talking about it uh, is correlated to, to taking action. Absolutely. I wonder. Yeah. 
I think so. And I think that when we, but, and, and there's, and there's, and here there is, here there is evidence in the, in the, and I, and I think that the, the way that it, the way that it, it works is not only the unburdening or the catharsis, but I, I think that it's something to me, at least, which is even more intriguing, which is that emotions are abstract about both positive and negative emotions are abstract. And those, those kind of that, 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 that vaporous quality to emotions, that sort of, ethereal uh cloud-like notion like uh, how emotions feel that's what makes positive emotions feel good it's what makes negative emotions feel bad and so when you take a negative emotion and you write about it or talk about it you're converting it from abstract to concrete you're converting it from this vaporous thing to concrete yeah. words and that helps that helps that helps um i'm mixing metaphors a bit here but that, that helps defang it and that also helps people begin the sense making. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. So, Dan, what constitutes a regret? A regret is 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 when we look back on some on on something that an action that we took or an action that we didn't take, and we wish we had done it differently or wish we had done a different thing, and we feel bad about it. And it's the kind of thing. It's an emo. It, and 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 I think what's what's significant about it is is that if you think about all the decisions that we make in a day, uh, think about all the decisions you made yesterday. You probably don't even remember most of them, right? And so 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 we make all kinds of decisions. We take all kinds of actions every single day. But there are few that we not only remember, but then make us feel bad. All right. And that so that's a very strong signal. So if you have a decision or an indecision from a year ago or five years ago or ten years ago. And you still feel if you remember it, that's amazing in itself. And yeah. but if you remember it and feel bad about it, that's telling you something. And that's what regret is. It's telling us something. Right. And we have agency over it. And you've you've alluded to some of the ways. Well, all, that's important, too. Yeah. 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 And so you've alluded to it already uh, in this conversation. But uh, just to clarify it, what are some of the main ways that regret is helpful for us? Well, it's helpful if we. It's, first of all, we have to deal with it properly, not ignore it, not wallow in it, but confront it. Uh, and when we do that, there's evidence in social psychology showing that it can help us become better negotiators. So you put somebody in a negotiation session, they, they, they do the negotiation, and then you say, okay, what do you regret about that negotiation? You say, you know, you bring on the regret, you, you invite the regret. Um, you do that in general, people do better in the next negotiation. It helps us become, there's some interesting evidence that it helps us become better strategists, uh, helps us become clearer thinkers, avoid cognitive biases, uh, helps us become better problem solvers um, and faster problem solvers. Uh, it helps us uh, find greater meaning in life. So there is, there is um, an enormous benefit to dealing with our regret when it comes to improving our subsequent decisions and actions. Gotcha. There's, uh, there's three questions I normally ask colleagues and I ask of myself when I'm debriefing uh, any kind of an event or project. Uh, and uh, the, the three questions are normally what went well, what was tricky, and what would you do differently? And I'm wondering about substituting mm. one of those last two questions with what did you regret? I wonder if it's a stronger emotional response for change. That's interesting. What was the second one? So it, it was what, what was, was tricky? tricky. What was tricky? Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I would, I would, I would, um, um, I would, I would, I would test it. I think that's, uh, it's an, it's another very interesting question. And so when you say what was tricky, what you're doing is you're giving people, um, a little bit more license to not be self-flagellating and not yes. bear all the blame. Um, on the other hand, you might be, it could be that you're exonerating people too, too much. So I don't know. I would, I would, I would, I, I would test yeah. it. I mean, I, I do yeah. think that that in general, and, and I've seen this is exciting from some, I've gotten emails from companies and other or in other organizations where bosses are going to their teams and saying, hey, let me tell you about a regret that I have. Let me tell you what I learned from it. And let me tell you what I'm going to do about it. And that I think it's very, that approach is very, very similar to what you're, you're talking about. It's like, let's yeah. talk about it. Let's, I'm going to tell you about my regret because what that's going to do is that's going to role model the fact that we shouldn't stigmatize regrets. But I'm not just going to leave it there. I'm going to tell you what lesson I learned from it. And then we're not going to leave it there, too, because just having a lesson isn't enough. You want to have an action. And so and now I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do about it. And I think that that's very similar to what you're talking about. 
Yeah, and uh, no, that makes a ton of sense. Now, early on, I, I loved your book, by the way, The Power of Regret, an incredible book. So for hey, those thanks. of you that haven't read it, pick it up, buy copies for your friends, family, relatives. Uh, you really grabbed my attention right at the beginning, uh, thankfully. But there's this story of the Olympics and how a bronze medal winner is often expressing more joy than the silver medalist. What does that have to do with regret? Because for me, that was you were talking about things there I'd never heard before. I wonder if you could go into that and how it relates to uh, to. So, this, is, this is some research. Some research has been around for about thirty years, and it's quite fascinating. And it goes to sort of. Let's go. It goes to some of the underlying mechanics of regret. Uh, regret is a form of what's known as counterfactual thinking. Our brains are incredible. One of the things that I discovered, I mean, what I at least appreciated in studying regret is how extraordinary our brains are. I mean, we can go forward in time. We can go backward in time. We can pretend something that 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 uh, happened a different way, and then what the consequences would be in the present. So it's pretty amazing. So counterfactual thinking is at the core of of this ability for regret and counterfactual thinking, meaning we can fathom, we can conjure events that run counter to the actual facts. Now, there are two kinds of counterfactual thinking uh, in general. There is what is known as an upward counterfactual and a downward counterfactual. I like to call an upward counterfactual and at least, all right? I'm sorry, I like to call a downward counterfactual and at least. A downward counterfactual is, um, you imagine how things could have been worse. So I have a lot of people in the database who say, I shouldn't have married that idiot, but at least I have those, these two great kids, all right? So you find the silver lining, you imagine how things could have gone worse. Um, upward counterfactuals, how you, you imagine how things could have been better, all right? If only I had um, uh, gone to this university rather than that university, I'd be making more money. Um, you imagine how things could have been better. And here's what we know. If only these upward counterfactuals make us feel worse. At least downward counterfactuals make us feel better. And so the Olympic story is a story of counterfactuals. So if you look at, and this is research that was done, they show participants photographs uh, on the Olympic medal stand, but they don't tell the, the people who are the participants uh, which medal the athletes have received. And so they have to identify who looks the happiest, who looks the second happiest, who looks the third happiest. And exactly as you say, the happiest person there is the gold medalist. Not surprisingly, they want a gold medal. But the bronze medalist is almost as happy. And the reason for that, and the, and the silver medalist often is not that happy. And the reason for that is that the silver medalist is doing an upward counterfactual. And if only, if only I had pedaled a little bit harder my bike tire would have edged over the finish line first and I'd be a gold medalist. This, the bronze medalist is doing a downward counterfactual. And at least the, the bronze medalist is saying, oh, at least I got to finish third, unlike that guy over there who finished fourth and doesn't even get a medal. And so, again, this is a good way. I think that, that study is a good way to illustrate the how powerful counterfactual thinking is and how it can have different consequences depending on which direction the counterfactuals take. Right, now and Dan, if I'm recalling this correctly, so the bronze medalist in the moment is wrapping themselves around at least some momentary happiness uh, by using the at least. The silver yeah. medalist is feeling some, momentarily, some momentary you know, displeasure or disappointment by if only. But if I understand it correctly, in the long run, the silver medalist that felt more negative in the moment was better off. Um, yeah, I, I think that they, I think that people end up, I, I, I think that's generally right. I think the other thing, but I think what's going on there, again, let's talk about the, the mechanism. I think the mechanism is that, yeah. is that our mood and our attitude tends to revert to the mean anyway. That is, you know, when we feel, you know, if you're feeling really bad at some point reasonably soon, you're going to feel a little bit better. And so I think that that's the phenomenon. I think that's the phenomenon going on there. Um, but I didn't, see, I didn't see evidence, yeah. I didn't see evidence that the, um, that the silver medalist, you know, um, you know, ended up um, silver medalist. There's no evidence that silver medalists end up spiraling into, you know, addiction and despair because of the if onlys. Yeah, well, and I think the thing I was interested in was the correlation between motivation. So is the silver medalist more motivated to keep growing and performing and training versus the bronze medalist sets into like, ah, kind of, 
I did, I did well. I made it. And I, and, I, and I don't know if you saw anything like that. Well, I mean, I don't know about in those particular studies, but you got it exactly right, because here's the thing. So I said, if onlys, uh, or at least make us feel better, but they don't help us do better. If yeah. onlys make us feel worse, and, but they help us do better. And that's what regret is. Regret is an upward counterfactual in if only. It makes us feel worse, and it helps us do better. And this is the tricky part about it, is that everybody wants the do better part, but they don't want the feel shitty part. But that's not the offer. The offer is it, it comes together that people do better because they feel worse. Uh, that 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 spear of unpleasantness is is the the catalyst for improvement, and that's the, and that's the key, and that's why this emotion is 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 hard to understand because it doesn't it, it it's it's less black and white than other things. Here's the thing: regret makes us feel worse, but by feeling worse, we can do better. Yeah. Right, so those those downward counterfactuals, they make us feel better, but they don't help us do better. Now, here's the thing. Right. Feeling better sometimes is totally cool. All right. That's that's fine. But, you know, and the, but the, the, what what so, so what happens is we, we resist the feeling bad. But by resisting feeling bad, we're foregoing the doing the doing better. Um, and as much as people would want only one piece of the deal, the deal is it's a package deal. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, Dan, you've collected thousands of data points now through the American uh, Regret Project and the World Project. As the as the data points first started coming in, what were some of those like the early light bulbs that started going off for you? Um, I I think the the first one was um, really how willing people were is what is how quickly these things came in. Uh, when yeah. I did the um, so so with the American Regret Project, we went to sort of a traditional public opinion panel, the thing that you would do for a political poll or a consumer survey or anything like that. So those people were, you know, pan you know, parts of panels that had been gathered by research firms and whatnot. It, with a with the World Regret Survey, the qualitative piece, this was just this giant collection tool. I think the first thing that surprised me was how many there were, how quickly. I mean, I basically put one newsletter mention and a couple of tweets and I got flooded and I, and I essentially stopped ever talking. I didn't, I, I stopped publicizing it because I didn't want to get inundated with, with these, I, uh, you know, um, and, and so I think the volume was the thing that surprised me the most. The second thing that surprised me, I guess, as I accumulated these things was how similar they were to each other. Um, you know, I got these regrets coming in from all over, from, from, you know, Every, you know, we didn't have any from Antarctica, but we had them from the other six continents. And I, I think people would be, if I concealed the, the source, I, I think people would be hard pressed to say where a lot of these regrets are coming from. Uh, right. You know, is yeah, it from, that's... you know, is it from, is it from Western Canada? Is it from the East Coast of the United States? Is it from Vietnam? Is it from, um, you know, Uruguay? Yeah, fascinating. And if uh, if the world needed something that was a unifying force, uh, it would be interesting if regret could be part of that. So, and, and as you started, oh, interesting. If you started to analyze the data, then so you you concluded that regret comes in four flavors, and I'd love it if you could go into what those four flavors of regret are, and then maybe how we sort of spot them and how we can use them to our advantage. Well, one of the so so in the world regret survey, this this twenty two now almost twenty two thousand regrets. What I noticed is that when I started analyzing them, is that around the world people had these same these same four regrets kept coming up over and over again. So one of them is what I call foundation regrets, and remember all these regrets begin with if you know regret is an if only. So so foundation regret is if if only I'd done the work. And these are people who made small decisions early in life that gather steam and cause terrible consequences later in life. I spent too much and saved too little. I didn't exercise enough. I didn't eat right. I didn't work hard enough in university. Uh, I didn't go to university because I didn't work hard enough in secondary school. Um, so small decisions that add up to bad consequences. Um, that's a foundation regret. Second category are boldness regrets. If only I'd taken the chance. These are people who regret not speaking up, not traveling, not asking somebody out on a date, not uh, starting a business. So it's basically people had a choice between playing it safe and taking and you know taking a shot. And when they didn't take the shot, they regret it. Uh, third category, more regrets. If only I'd done the right thing. Again, you're at this juncture, you can you can take the high road, you can take the low road, 
And when people take the low road, a lot of us, most of us, I'm convinced, end up regretting it. So that's moral regrets. And finally, our connection regrets, which is if only I'd reached out. And these are regrets about all the relationships in our lives. Um, and when they, when they come apart um, or never really cohere and we don't do anything, uh, that's a source of deep regret. Right. And is the way that we leverage this and take action then different? depending on what regret it is, or is, is there a sort of a common way that- Not necessarily, not necessarily. Yeah. I mean, I think what we wanna do with, I mean, again, it's a, you know, what we wanna do with any kind of regret. I, 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 like if you pick any of those, those regrets from those categories, the way yeah. that one would work through it is relatively similar. Um, there's gonna be some difference between an action and an inaction uh, regret. Yeah. So if you have, but, but again, inaction regrets outnumber action regrets. So if you have a regret, say about, if you have a regret, say about bullying, all right? So um, one thing that you could do is you could try to reach out to the people you bullied and apologize, which many people have done. Um, so that's something you, you, you can't do something like that with an inaction regret. But beyond that difference, the process by which people reckon with their regrets, make sense of them, draw lessons from them is pretty much the same. Yeah. And it was, it's interesting on the bullying piece that you have said is that later in life, it's the people that did the bullying that have more regret and angst and, and um, stress about it than the folks that were bullied. That's fascinating. That's what that's what I've seen anecdotally. I don't have evidence. I, I, I've seen that in uh, I was surprised by how many people who bullied. And I, I didn't really write about this. I was surprised by how first of all, I was surprised by how many people had regrets about having bullied other people. I was shocked by that. The second thing was, is that what I heard anecdotally from many of those people whom I've interviewed, because again, as I said, I collected all these regrets. I gave people the chance to opt in and give me their email address. And for about 175 or so of the people there, I don't, I can't remember the exact number, but it was like, you know, over, over 160 and less than 190 uh, I interviewed. And um, the, I was surprised by the number of people who told me that they went back and tried to find people that they bullied. And that when they did that, the people who were, the people who were bullied were less troubled than they were. I also heard from people who, who were bullied and had a, the bully reach out. And once again, they had actually forgotten about it, maybe made peace with it. Not, not in every case, but had, you know, had made peace with it and um, were, were yeah. less traumatized by it. So. But I don't know how I don't know how universal that, I don't know how universal that is. Yeah, no, fair enough. And I, for the listeners, Dan, I, I want people to uh, to leave this conversation sort of armed and dangerous and ready to use regrets uh, to their advantage to to enhance their life experience. And you have uh, you've said that you've uh, you've since you wrote the book, you've kind of revised your steps to deal with regret, and you've sort of called them the inward, the outward, and the forward. And I would love yeah. it if you'd unpack that for us a bit and, and just give some examples of how uh, anybody listening to this conversation could start to use those three things to their advantage. Sure. So step one. So, so let's, let's, let's pick a regret. Give me a regret that, that you've heard of or you might have, um, you know, a regret yeah, so, that people have. Let's take an inaction regret. An inaction regret. Well, I, I think I would reg I regret. Let's, I'll use a high school one. I regret not trying out for the high school basketball team. I was a really good middle school basketball player and then I had to switch schools to play high school and I was really intimidated by a new social environment and I've always thought, geez, I really missed an opportunity not to go for that. Okay, fantastic, all right? So, okay, so that's a gr I love that one. All right, oh, um, uh, did you grow up in Alberta? I did, yeah, Edmonton, okay. Fort Saskatchewan. Okay. So, yeah. Okay. Well, all right. Got it. Um, I didn't know that basketball was that big in that part of Canada. I know basketball is huge in Ontario, but yeah. you know, maybe it, you know, um, and it's a, so it's in any a event, growing, it's a growing sport, but I was, I was tall and lanky. So I played hockey, football, and basketball. Those were my sports. Uh -huh. Okay. Rock and roll. Okay. So, so let's talk about Jeff's basketball regret. Fantastic. Okay. So here we go. So the first thing to do is, and, and, and let's say it's bugging you more than it probably is. All right. So the first step is inward, right? How do you think about that? How do you frame that regret in yourself? A lot of times when people have a regret, a mistake, they, they, they engage, in, all of us engage in self-talk. That is, we talk to ourselves silently. And a lot of times in the face of these kinds of missteps and mistakes, our self-talk is cruel. So you might say, oh, I'm such a freaking idiot. I can't believe that I did that. 
I'm such a wimp, I, you know, and just really excoriate yourself. I can't believe I didn't step up and try out. I always do that. That's I'm just a loser. I can't believe that I'm just such a wimp, you know, and people talk to themselves that way. I talk to myself that way sometimes. And um, what the research tells us is that's a bad idea. <laughs> um, there's no evidence that that is motivating or uh, performance enhancing. Um, instead, what you should be doing in this case is treat yourself with kindness rather than contempt. So if you think about like, if someone else came to you with that regret, would you say to them, oh, you idiot, you're a moron, you're a total wimp. No, you would say, oh man, I empathize with that. Yeah, that's tough. Yeah, but again, you were 17 or eight, 16. And, you know, and so treat yourself with kindness rather than contempt. Um, um, recognize that your regrets are part of the human condition. So for instance, in my database, I got a lot of regrets like that, Jeff, no joke. There's somebody in the book. There's somebody quoted in the book who has a basketball tryout related regret, all right? So <laughs> yeah. I'm dead serious about that. So mm -hmm. it's like, so any regret that people have, you give me 90 seconds, I'll find, I'll find the same, basically the same one somewhere, all right? So, yeah. so it's part of the human experience. And the other thing is like, it's a moment in your life, not the full measure of your life. So, so you know, you say to yourself, wait a second. So does this decision I made or indecision that I endured when I was whatever you were 15 years old, 14 years old, does that fully define my life? No, of course not. It's a moment in your life, not the full measure of your life. So when we do that, that can be um, freeing in a way. Now, the second step, outward. You know what you should do? As you've done here, disclose it. Talk about it. Write about it. We've talked. We we we've discussed some of the benefits of that. You convert this blobby feeling into concrete words. You disclose. Um, we we're concerned that we're, we we have the fear that when we disclose our mistakes or our vulnerabilities, people will think less of us. When in fact, there's a lot of evidence showing they think more of us. So if you share that regret with people, you know what? I get. I mean, if you share that regret with, I I think you're going to get a lot of people offering up their own testimony that's kind of similar to that all right so we've done that and then you have to draw a lesson from it um and the way we draw a lesson and, and that requires a little bit of self-distancing and so what you want to do is you want to extract a lesson from it so i think the lesson from it is that you know i think what 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 bugged you i think the lesson from that is okay first of all let's it, it tells you what you value so what you value you value some degree of boldness you value some degree of putting yourself out there okay so it's a very clear signal this thing happened to you decades ago it still bugs you that's a clear signal about what you value and what you value is putting yourself out there trying stuff and being bold that's part of who you are that's a good thing all right so then the question is what lesson do you learn from that and so the lesson that you learn from that i think can be multiple uh, it could be that you know what, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to try out for a men's master's league. Um, I am, um, I am contemplating doing a new sport with a new group of people that's unfamiliar to me. I'm a little off feeling awkward about it, but you know what, I'm going to push past that awkwardness because I learned my lesson there. You're going to talk to, you know, your, 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 your uh, uh, family members who are younger and tell them that story and encourage them to, take their shot. And so when you go through it in this way, treat yourself with kindness rather than contempt, disclose to make sense of it, and then take a step back and extract a lesson from it. It can be a powerful use forward. It can, it can be powerfully forward. And so what you do in this case is you don't ignore it because it's bugging you. 10 years later yeah. or whatever, 20, 30 years later, you don't wallow in it. You say, wait a second, this is telling me something. It's telling me what I value and instructing me on how to do better. Yeah, Dan, you're a magician. Uh, that is so helpful and that i mean that's helpful directly in terms of looking at regrets but but um uh, the other thing that i love that you said there is that when we assess our regrets it's a powerful way to guide us towards what we value and that is such a absolutely a, it's such a, a an important exercise for people to go through is figure out and clarify what their values are and i i, I find so often that what most people lean to is they print off a list of values from the internet and they take their best guess but if they could take that, right, and, and, and then take, let's look at the regrets I have in my life, how would that inform actually laser focusing on their actual values? That is so incredibly powerful and insightful. Well, thank you. And, wow. and, and again, this is, this is central in, 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 in why regret is such an important emotion to think about, to talk yes. about, to write about, to research. Because, yeah. you know, when, when, and, and here's the thing about the, take, take those four regrets. When people tell you what they regret the most, they're telling you what they value the most. You know, yeah. um, again, it goes back to what we were talking about before. Yeah. 
most of the decision I made yesterday, I don't remember. But if there's stuff that that I decisions or indecisions from decades ago that still bother me, that's a very, very, very strong signal. And one of the signals yeah. is, is that it's a signal about what I value. So for me, it's like, you know, I have some regrets about kindness um, and not being a bully, but a weird sort of kindness through inaction by sort of standing by when people were being mistreated. Bugs the hell out of yeah. me. Um, and yeah. And but but what is what it what what I finally learned in my you know mid adulthood is that I think I val I value kindness more than I would have consciously yeah. known or more than I would have recognized more directly. Yeah, and I, I think we're also proving out something we spoke about earlier, which is uh, it might be easier, in fact, to admit regrets to a, a, a safe stranger and. I've never talked about that story with anybody. There's nobody else in the world except oh, really? you and me and the people in the studio right now that know that I have that regret. And the biggest reason that I didn't try out is I had some body image issues back then and it was a new school and I've been born with these like powerful but awfully skinny chicken legs and I, was, I, would, I didn't want anyone to see them of these new cohort of friends in high school. So it actually informs the empathy I have for other people as well, and the ability, I think, to see behind the obvious, to see what else might be motivating people's behavior. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I think that's a big lesson anyway, which is that, you know, what you see is not always everything that's there. That, you know, yeah. if, you, if you actually treat people with a little bit of empathy, um, you know, uh, because everybody, every single person, no matter how, polished and accomplished and beautiful and sparkling they are on the outside is dealing with something that you don't know about. And yeah. that's been a helpful lesson for me in dealing with other people. Yeah. Your research uh, concluded that 10% uh, of the regrets were the moral variety, moral regret category. I was surprised yeah. they were so low. Did that surprise you? Uh, oh, well, I don't know. Um, the Maybe maybe a little bit, but because I, all I did, I asked people for one big regret. So I didn't yeah. ask people for all their regrets. So maybe if I'd asked people for all their regrets, they would have, they Fair. would have, um, um, there would have been more in the moral category. But um, yeah, but I, you know, the other thing about it is, is that there are also are, there also are more um, inaction regrets than action regrets, and a reason for that is that yeah. and most moral regrets are action regrets. I cheated on my spouse, I bullied somebody, I swindled a business partner. And it's yeah. possible to undo some of those action regrets. And yeah. whereas inaction regrets stick with us for much longer. And so if you look at the two biggest categories, boldness regrets and connection regrets, they're almost all inactions because they're harder yeah. to undo. Yeah, and and boldness regrets uh, are not boldness regrets. The um, the the uh, the biggest category of regret were the connection regrets. Correct? Yeah, yeah. What did you learn about connection regrets, sort of after the fact, and 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 how that can have an effect on our relationships later on? Well, I mean, I learned a lot from that just just personally. I mean, the the you know a lot of us get to a juncture where. We say we have a friend or a relative or whoever, someone, someone in, who was in our life or should have been in our life, and they're not as much in our lives now. And we feel bad about that. And we say, oh, I really should reach out to Jeff. And then you say, oh, no, it's going to be really awkward if I do that because I haven't talked to him for so long and he's not going to care. Uh, I think the big lesson is that is how profoundly wrong we are in both of those, that when we do reach out, it's significantly less awkward than we suspect. What's more is that the Jeffs, the people to whom we're reaching out, almost always welcome it. And, and so, you know, my rhyming mantra for connection regrets is when in doubt, reach out. So if you're at it, yeah. for me, if, if I'm at a juncture where I'm thinking, should I reach out or should I not reach out? Being at that juncture has answered the question. Yeah. And the thing, here's the thing that, that really, really touched me uh, of, of those stories and those examples. And, and there was the two women that had connected after, I think, you know, almost yeah. three decades of not, of not talking. We, we're kind of living in this paradox right now is that we've never been more technology, uh, technologically connected, but, but emotionally disconnected. And so if, we've, if, if that's the largest pool of regrets, what a powerful mechanism closing some of those gaps could be on bringing the world to a better place. Uh, uh, 
I, I'll, I'm just going to say amen to that. I, I really do think that if, if, if everybody listening to this thinks about someone in their life who they haven't talked to for a while, um, when you're done listening to this interview, reach out to that person. Uh, chances are the overture is going to be very welcomed. welcomed. Yeah, no, fair, fair enough. Uh, Dan, I want to switch gears just a little bit here. And I, I want to talk, this, there was a concept later in the book that it, it, uh, it left me wanting to investigate and understand it more. And, and so you talked about this, this, this notion that, that we have three selves. And so we have our actual self, we have our ideal self, and then we have our ought self. And that ought self is like who we should be. And I, I just thought it was interesting that the ought self um, seems to make us act more, but we regret them less. And I was wondering if you could just go into a little bit about yeah. how the ought self influences our lives and behavior. This is, this is based on some research on, from Tori Higgins of, form, of, of Columbia University who has this way of thinking about motivation and that we're motivated by the gap between our, you know, so we have our actual self and then we have our ideal self, and then we have our ought self, and then we, we're motivated by the gap between that. And, and I think it, it's complicated. Uh, if you think about our ought self, uh, if, we, if we want to divide these four regrets, I mean, the moral regrets are very much about ought. Um, and not surprisingly, they're the smallest category. Um, and then some of the connection regrets and foundation regrets are a little bit about ought, but they're also about ideal. And then the boldness is, is largely about ideal. And, um, you know, I think that it, ha I think that some of it has to do with how do we navigate life and balance our obligations or perceived obligations to others with our desire to be self-directed and to determine the path of our own lives. And I think many cases, people tilt a little bit too much toward their toward their um, um, conforming to what others expect and they, they end up regretting that. But I think what's interesting about this more broadly that goes to this, and I think it's a fascinating thing is that, you know, we can think about all these four core regrets as partly about opportunity and partly about obligation. And I think that's what I, that's what I think ideal and ought is. So, um, um, and the, so, so, so boldness regrets are largely about opportunity Moral regrets are largely about obligation. Foundation and connection are, are a mix of things. And so do you want, and, and I think the question is, as we try to navigate our lives and figure out what does it mean to have a life well lived, we have to ask ourselves, do you want a life of obligation or do you want a life of opportunity? And I think the answer is yes. We want, to, we want both of those things, that, that, that finding that right mix is important. So if you have a life of only obligation, that's a pretty severe life. Um, I'm not sure you have a lot of joy and a lot of just, you know, traditional kinds of happiness there. Uh, if you have a life of only opportunity, I think that's pretty hollow. Um, and so what we want is we want a life that fuses opportunity and obligation. And once again, regret surfaces that incredibly important question. Right. So, no, that's good advice. The whole, the whole balancing, because as I was trying to digest that the first couple of times through it, I, you know, I couldn't help but think if, if we're motivated to close all of these ought-related regrets, you live a life that perhaps is not your own, which only begets exactly. more regrets. So, Amen. Yeah. Amen. Now, stuff. that said, we do, we do want, but, but here's the thing, if we're only pursuing opportunity, I think that's ultimately hollow. Because one of the things yeah. that give life is meaning is, is fulfilling our obligations to others, fulfilling our yeah. obligations to the people we love, fulfilling our obligations to our community. I mean, we had, so, so there are people, I think it's pretty interesting, there weren't that many, but there were enough to, for me to notice. There were people who, in my sample, Americans, who, all Americans, not, not any other nationality, who had moral regrets about not having served in the military. And what they, their, their, it was an ought, their ought selves said, I'm somebody who's patriotic, I'm somebody who serves my country. I'm someone who fulfills my obligations as a citizen, and I failed on that. And so, yeah. um, and so, 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 oblig you know, our lives are a mix of obligation and opportunity, and finding that right balance is is important. Dan, what would you say to folks who are adamant they don't experience regret? I, I would say um, one of two things. 
either they're not being honest with themselves or what they've done is that they've, they have processed that regret in a profoundly healthy way. So if you say, let's go back to, let's go, let's, let's say that I have a regret about, um, um, not, uh, uh, something mundane, not studying abroad when I was in university and it, and it's, oh man, I can't believe I didn't do that. But since then I've used that regret to travel all over the world. Um, you might have, there's a sort of a metaphysical question about, well, does that regret, have you fully extinguished that? I don't think you fully extinguish it. I think that regret is still there. It might be in ashes, but I think it's still there. Um, so it's possible that they have processed it in a very healthy way. Um, another thing is that they might not be, they might not be honest with themselves. And I guess a third possibility is that there is a, you, 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 you have to have at least somewhat of a, of a, you have to be able to think in a, in a, in a um, somewhat flexible way. Cause here's the thing. It's like, if you, if people say, I don't have any regrets because everything I did or didn't do has brought me to this moment. And I like where my life is. Okay. So here's the thing. You can like where your life is and still have regrets and still learn, for, learn about your values and move forward. So if I have a regret about, um, okay, I'll give you, I, I have regrets about certain jobs, like some jobs that I took earlier in my life. All right. Now, ultimately, those jobs led to other jobs that ended up being okay. And I'm okay with where I am. I'm happy where I am right now. But I can still, but I can, uh, my, my mind is, is expansive enough that I can say, yeah, I like my life, but I learn, I regret making those decisions and I want to learn from those decisions so that I can make better decisions in the future. Yeah. Yeah. And I wondered, I, something similar around, I just wondered if the processing time is just, they're just so adept at processing that they don't necessarily acknowledge it or spot it as a regret. So yeah, it, it's could interesting. Be, could be, yeah. but everybody has regrets. I mean, there's no, um, you know, um, you know, I mean, five-year-olds don't, and people with brain damage don't, and sociopaths don't. But um, but everybody else, everybody else has, everybody else has some. Um, and now, not everybody, not everybody wants to actually acknowledge that. But yeah. everybody has, and so I mean, it's interesting you say that because in the in the world regret in the American Regret Project, the giant public opinion survey, I asked the way I phrased the question to people was intentional. What I said is that how often. Do you look back on your life and wish you had done things differently? So I describe mm. regret without saying the word. And in that poll, a representative sample of the U.S. population, we had 1% say never. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I have this, there's, there's a couple, couple things that happen, especially on Twitter when I get into this conversation about regret, is uh, usually people will say that are deniers will say, uh, I have no regrets. Everything happens for a reason. And well, but they're kind of acknowledging right. that they're, they're processing our regrets, even just in that statement. And then, um, and then I've got other folks, and these tend to be like people that are very, there seems to be a pattern. It's a small, very small sample size, but are they, I would call them ultra driven. So they either know Navy SEALs or they're like ultra marathon runners or stuff like that. They're like, nope, yeah. I, uh, I'm so mentally focused that when something happens, I take the lesson, I apply it and I move on. And that's their whole demeanor. That's fine. I mean, that, but you know, they, and it could, that, that could be an especially effective processing, as, as you said. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't mean that they didn't, they didn't, again, it's a metaphysical question about, okay, so if you take the lesson, does that fully eradicate the regret? But the, the thing is, yeah. it's like, if you actually, I mean, I have, I, my, my, my experience has been that when, you, when, when you actually have a, have a conversation with people and probe just a little bit, they eventually will admit it. So, so because I think that they also feel a sense of shame about having a regret, which they shouldn't have. So they don't have enough yeah. self-compassion. They think that by by saying that they have a regret, they're somehow undermining their excellence. They're undermining their competence. They're undermining their capabilities. Yeah. Um, and so, like for instance, I have people who feel people who I mean, it's crazy. People who went to the World Regret Survey, all right, voluntarily. What's your biggest regret? And they say, I don't have any regrets. And then they say, but um, uh, 12 years ago, I was really mistreated my boyfriend and I feel, I still feel bad about that, but I don't have any regrets. There you go. Yeah, exactly. 
Yeah, Dan, when it comes to giving at least statements, if we have a friend that is struggling, we know that uh, at least statements are not helpful and it comes across as toxic positivity. So why are at, well, le so why are at least statements helpful for us personally when dealing with regrets, do you think? Well, okay, so, so at least statements are not all bad. Here's the thing, you just have to know what you're getting into, what you're getting into, okay. all right? So with an at least, people feel better, all right? And sometimes it's okay to feel better. But you can't expect, but, but feeling better is often not the pathway to doing better. Sometimes, sometimes it is. So, so you can, you know, you know, you can say, you can say, uh, somebody comes to you and says, oh, I can't believe I married that idiot. Uh, and you can say, well, but at least you have this great daughter. Um, you can, um, that may make the person feel better, but you can still move on and say, okay, so what is the lesson you've learned from this? And what are you going to, what are you going to do about it? So there's nothing at least are not inherently bad. You just have to know that when you use them on yourself and others, that alone is not going to get you improvement. It's going to make oh, so you feel yeah, better. And it's okay to feel, it's okay to feel better. It's okay to feel better. It's just that, but what ultimately we want is we want people to do better. We want people to understand their motives. We want other people to understand their values. We want people to change their behavior for the better. I wonder if there's a timing element then. So when you're using it at least with a friend who's struggling, and their marriage just broke up, you know, the last thing they want to hear is at least you have all of these other things. And, and I wonder if there's a timing element to that and you might have some thoughts on the timing perspective. Sure, that's a good question. I, I, actually, don't, I actually don't know. Um, I think yeah. it's, my hunch is that it's going to vary from person to person. And so you have to read the yeah. room, you have to know your audience. Yeah. What, what does it mean for a person if they fail to learn from their regrets? Well, I mean, I think what it means is that they haven't gone through the process correctly or at all. Um, but I think that, and, and I think it's usually not their fault entirely. It's usually the fact that they just don't know how to do it. And so the more that all of us who have a better sense of how to do it can coach other people on how to go through the process, I think, you know, that's a way to be of service to the world. Yeah. Yeah, I, um, I, I used to, uh, without knowing it, when I, coached, uh, when I coached hockey, I would use anticipatory regrets as a way to galvanize motivation. So we would, before a big game, you know, we would oftentimes visualize and talk about, uh, imagine the game is over. And I've heard professional coaches talk about this. And uh, you didn't give your best effort, or you didn't put a teammate first, or you didn't keep a positive attitude, and, and we lose the game. But you say there's some danger with anticipatory regrets. What are they? Well, it depends. So, so anticipating your regrets can sometimes lead us to more risk-averse behavior. Like I think that the the thing that you're that you're talking about there is 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 pretty healthy. Um, yeah. Um, but you know, so so when we think about, um, uh, I mean, the classic example is. Um, the classic example is um, taking a multiple choice test and changing your answer on the multiple choice test. So what happens is, is that you're, 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 you're motoring along on a multiple choice test. You're on number 13 and you think it's A. And then when you get a little further along in the test, you say, wait a second, I think the answer to 13 is actually D, not A. Should you change your answer? And there's a lot of research on this. And what the research tells us is, is that, yeah, you should change your answer. People are, much, people are more likely to change from a wrong answer to a right answer. But people don't do that. Why? Because they anticipate the regret of switching to a wrong answer. And that anticipated regret is so painful that they say, you know what, I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to stick with this answer. Because if I switch from A, and it turns out that A is the right answer, I'm really going to regret it. And they, right. it's, it's harder for them to visualize just sticking with the wrong answer and missing the question because of, because of that. So sometimes anticipated regret causes us to become more risk averse. Sometimes we, we, um, um, we overstate how much regret we're going to experience uh, in advance and that steers us away from things. So, um, but I think that your method is not, I think that your method is not bad. The other thing is there's some other interesting research from um, uh, what's her name? Uh, Gabrielle Ottingen about, you know, one thing to do in that case is to, is, is to envision not only the outcome, but to envision the obstacles that are gonna get in the way and then envision how you're gonna get past them. So, yeah. so let's say that, okay, so what are the obstacles we're gonna to face to winning this game? All right, so that person has, that other team has this giant defenseman who is very hard to get around 
and you know will check us into the boards and cause a lot, inflict a lot of pain, that's going to be a problem. So therefore, when I see him coming to me, I immediately get rid of the puck and get it to the other side of the ice or you know something like that. So you envision, you, you not only envision the outcome, you envision the obstacles and then how you're going to surmount those obstacles. Yeah, no, that, that, that makes good sense. Uh, that, that makes really good sense. Dan, I'm going to switch gears. I've got some more sort of personal related questions for you to, clo to close up. Um, I'm, after reading the book, I'm seeing regret everywhere. It's kind of how it shows up. You buy a red car and you think you're the only one and then you spot them all, all over the highway. I, yeah. I wonder if the first person that ever wrote a book about regret was Charles Dickens. Because isn't a Christmas carol really a story about regret? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. No yeah. question about it. Um, you know, it's, uh, you know, and it's, a, it's, it's about somebody. Yeah, exactly. It's about somebody who had, through a set of narrative tricks, um, was able to look back on his life. Yeah, and there's, and there's a redemption quality of leveraging regret, which was certainly, certainly st uh, stuck with me. So you, you've said it, and you, you talk about it in the book a little bit, that you're a recovering self-criticism junkie. What, what are like, some of the most common things that you criticize yourself about? Uh, not working hard enough, uh, not getting enough done, um, not exercising enough, not exercising vigorously enough, um, um, not being good about reaching out to people, um, not reading enough, uh, not knowing enough about various topics. It's a pretty long list. So it's a lot. So like, how did, how did this writing this book help you with some of that? Well, I mean, it, it taught me a little bit of self, it, for, for one thing, just intellectually, it told me that, that, that lacerating myself is not going to, is not going to improve performance. There's very little evidence that it does that. Um, the alternative is the alternative is to, but the alternative is sort of boosting my self-esteem, looking myself in the mirror and talking myself how awesome I am is also a colossally stupid idea. Uh, instead, what I should do is have some self-compassion. Um, yeah, uh, you know, I should treat myself with kindness rather than contempt. So if I say, uh, yeah, man, I didn't work hard enough today or this week, um, it's like, okay, so why not? What were the obstacles in the way? Um, what can you do next week? You know, rather than just laugh, if, if a friend came to me and said, I didn't work hard enough this week, I'd say, all right, why, why not? Um, and oh, I got distracted. I had this and it's like, okay, great. That's you, you've learned from that. So what are you going to, what, uh, what processes, what systems are you going to put in place next week? So you can work a little bit harder. Uh, and yeah. again, it's, it's very similar to how we deal with negative emotions in general that I keep coming back to. You don't want to ignore it and you don't want to wallow in it. You want to think about it. Um, and you want to think about it, extract a lesson from it, and move forward. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I uh, I appreciate it. And I, and I and the reason I asked the question is I think it's helpful for for listeners to hear what high achievers and I mean you've sold uh, you know, how many uh, well, millions of books and the followers that you have and the influence that you have. And I think it's uh, it's very humanizing for hear to hear you talk with that kind of vulnerability. So thank you for for doing that. Uh, what's um what's a book you're hoping somebody else will write or a TED talk you're hoping somebody else will give that would be interesting for you right now? Um, I'd like to see, um, I'd like to see a, a book. I'm looking for like a book that really encapsulates um, artificial intelligence, what it is and what it means. Uh, I have a few books on my shelf, on my pile like that that I haven't gotten to yet. So maybe it's one of those. But I think that like a kind of a primer on artificial intelligence, what it is, how it works, what its consequences might be and why we should care would be super interesting. Right. And what's sort of at the heart of driving that curiosity of that subject? Uh, because I think that when I look at the, the advances in artificial intelligence right now, it's a it's a it's a big deal. Yeah. It's a big deal. Yeah, no, it's good. Um, I'd, read that, I'd read that book too, almost a, uh, an AI for dummies I'm picturing actually, Dan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something, 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 something like that. Um, I, I think that yeah. would be a really interesting book. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you also say in the book that you, um, that you regret not being kinder to people when you were younger. Now, how do you yeah. think that regret has affected your career? I think that because I felt bad about that and I changed my behavior, um, I think that I'm a slightly more generous person than I might have been under a professionally generous person under other circumstances. Um, that, you know, helping people out is something that I professionally is something that I generally like to do. And it gives me a sense of meaning and purpose 
um, because, you know, in the past people, people helped me out. So I feel there's a sense of paying forward there. Um, and, um, you know, and also I, I've become a bigger, because some of my kindness regrets are regrets about not speaking up when people were being mistreated or excluded. I try to do that more right now. So if I see people who are being mistreated in a group setting or being excluded in a group setting, I, I, I do try to either, you know, in, in the one instance, speak up or in the other instance, bring that person into the scrum. Yeah, Dan, thank you for that. Um, and on that note, I want to thank you for uh, not only joining me today, but for being so kind to me. And uh, this experience with you has been wonderful. And I want to just thank you on behalf of myself and everybody listening in today of the incredible impact that you, you have had, you're having, and will well, continue thanks. to have on, uh, on the world and not just in a business context, really just in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, an overarching context. So Dan, it's been a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much. Uh, thanks for having me, Jeff. I, I really enjoyed the conversation. If you enjoyed this episode and found it helpful, don't forget to give us a five-star rating and subscribe to our YouTube channel or wherever your favorite podcasts are found. And if you're part of a leadership team and you know that your organization is capable of even better performance, please reach out to us at unleashresults.com for a conversation and learn more about how we might help unleash the potential of your team and organization.